5: What is it really going to take to heal ourselves, our communities, and our planet? I'm Alicia Silverstone, and this is The Real Heal. So far this season, we've talked about healing in almost every way, healing our minds, our bodies, our communities, our children. In this episode, I spoke to the president and founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, and Peter Singer, professor of bioethics and author of Animal Liberation, about healing the relationship between humans and other animals and why we treat ourselves differently than how we treat other species. We chat about how they came to consider the lives of animals, the powerful effects of their activism, how factory farming contributes to food deserts, and most importantly, how a renewed respect for all species can help us to heal ourselves and our planet. I'm so grateful to Ingrid and Peter for chatting with me and helping me to close season one of the podcast. And of course, thank you for joining me on this journey of healing. So without further ado. Let's get into the real heal. Ingrid and Peter, I am so grateful to both of you to speak to me today. You're both incredible and so important to me and the journey that I've been on. So I want to introduce you properly. Ingrid, would you like to start? Ingrid Newkirk, who are
6: you? (laughs) <laughs> I ask myself that every day. Um, I'm the founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, an organization that probably wouldn't have existed if we hadn't, if I hadn't read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation Book, which has been known as the Bible of the animal rights movement. We have about nine million members. We're in nine countries. And we focus on where the largest numbers of animals suffer the greatest, which means for food, for clothing, in entertainment, pest control, and of course, in laboratories where their suffering is almost immeasurable.
5: Yes. And Peter, would you like to, Ingrid just said who you are, but you can say it as well.
3: (laughs) Sure. Um, As Ingrid said, I'm... Uh, the author of Animal Liberation, which was first published back in 1975. Um, And I'm currently working on a new edition. Uh, So there has been an edition in between, but it needs updating. I'm also Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. My background is in philosophy, specifically ethics. Uh, I'm Australian, as your people can probably hear, and I'm speaking to you now from Australia.
5: Lovely. So I just wanted to ask you both, and you can decide who wants to go first, but how did you arrive? What's the story, the moment that, you know, you really realized that animals, you know, were were worthy of your attention and something to care about? When was that sort of click that it shifted for you?
6: Peter, it happened to you first, so I think you should go first. Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you, Ingrid. Okay, so I can actually date this pretty closely to an event that happened when I was a graduate student at Oxford University uh, in 1970. I'd fallen into a conversation after a, a class with a, another graduate student, a Canadian called Richard Keshen, and he invited me back to his college, Balliol College, for lunch. And when we uh went into the dining hall, there was a choice to what you could eat was a spaghetti which had a kind of reddish brown sauce on top of it uh, or a salad plate. And Richard asked if there was meat in the spaghetti and when he was told that there was, he took the salad plate. I took the spaghetti and we went on with our conversation for a while, but when that had finished, I asked him why? Why did he ask that question about meat? And you have to realize this is 1970. I don't think I'd ever met a vegetarian, or if I had, maybe I'd met a uh, person of Indian background. But uh, Richard just very straightforwardly said, "I don't think it's right to treat animals in the way that the, the animals that get turned into meat are treated." And I really didn't know anything about this. I'd never heard of factory farming at that time, and uh, I assumed that animals had nice lives outside in the farms. Of course, I knew they got trucked to slaughter and killed. But you know, although I was a philosophy student studying ethics, I'd never really thought about seriously about the ethics of of how we treat animals. I assumed, as many people do, that somehow that can't be as an important an issue as the Vietnam War that was going on then, or, or racial questions. I just thought it was nothing very important but Richard challenged me to think about that more um, and I did. I I read a book by Ruth Harrison called Animal Machines which talked about factory farming in England as it was developing at the time and pretty soon uh, my wife and I decided we were going to stop eating meat uh, and we did very soon after that.
6: Thank you to Richard then.
3: Absolutely and Richard is alive and well and, and living in uh, Nova Scotia so I, I I'm still in touch with him.
6: Well, please thank him for me, because that encounter at Oxford set off a chain of events that's had enormous repercussions. I also read Ruth Harrison's Animal Factories when I was driving from England uh, to Wales. And uh, well, not while I was actually driving, but during that trip. (laughs) And it was just stunning. It, It was simply about factory farming. And no one had heard how animals were intensively raised. And I remember bawling my eyes out in a hotel room and deciding I'm going uh, vegetarian. Nobody then ever had spoken the word vegan. And so I arrived at my parents' home. They were staying there temporarily. And my mother... Kept badgering me and saying, Oh, come on, it doesn't make any difference. Have a little bit of this, have a little bit of that. You know, you love Dover Soul, darling. (laughs) And so that went out the window because I was 19 and I just didn't know any vegetarians. And I believed, well, maybe it doesn't make any difference. So that was the end of that. I had grown up in a very caring family. My mother's um, adage, if you will, was, It doesn't matter who is suffering, it matters that they're suffering and what you can do about it. So I hadn't been shielded from those thoughts. We lived in India for a time. My mother took in refugees from Tibet, from the streets, unmarried women who had been thrown out of the house, animals, you name it. And it was all about what you could do. But we ate animals. I had a fur hat from a wild cat caught in Kashmir that I adored, the hat, and always chose to take the tongas, the horse-drawn carriages, with these bone-thin horses because I loved animals. So after I read Peter's book, suddenly it all fit together for me, and the inconsistencies fell away, and I thought, well, I don't just believe in being kind to dogs and cats and horses maybe, or, you know, a baby bird who's fallen from the nest. What difference does it make if I'm familiar with these animals, this kind of animal or not? What difference does it make what kind of package any living being comes in? I mean, they all feel. And so Peter had tied all this up so carefully and presented it so beautifully that suddenly everything was clear to me. And I thought. Well, if I'm this dense (laughs) and I've been through my life hurting animals, not knowingly, but certainly doing it, but I cared for animals and love animals, then what about all the other people who are just like me? So I thought, got to start a group then and start showing people what's going on behind the scenes they never visit and got to do the homework for them to show them what the options are so that they can make compassionate choices. And that's how it all really came together for me. I
5: wonder, in both of your cases, another person could have read these books. Another person could have had that conversation you had with Richard and sort of said, oh, that doesn't sound nice, and moved on. Do you know what I mean? And not had it land inside them in a way that you dedicated your lives to ending this suffering and other ver- other wonderful things as well. So I just wonder if you know what it was about inside of you that you know made you hear it differently or let it land inside of you in a way that really inspired you to make change.
3: It, it's probably actually different for uh, each of us because. Um, I didn't feel I had a particularly close bond with animals at the time that I met Richard. Um, So for me, I think it came much more from the fact that I was a student studying philosophy and studying ethics. And Richard really posed a challenge. And the, the challenge was something like, well, we think that all humans... Um, have basic rights or we think that they're entitled to equal consideration. Uh, We don't think that they should be used just as means to our ends. But what is it that draws the boundary line between humans and animals that says, yes, if you're a member of the species Homo sapien, then you have this special moral status. But if you're a member of some other species, even though you're capable of feeling pain or enjoying your life, that doesn't really matter or at least it's completely subordinated to our interests in whatever we want to get out of you so and that was kind of an an intellectual puzzle now Maybe if I'd been religious, I might have said, well, God gave us the animals, so that's the answer to that problem. But I couldn't appeal to any such answer because I wasn't a religious believer. So I thought about it, and for a little while, maybe I thought, well, you know, there must be some something here that I'm missing. What is the explanation? Everybody else thinks it's okay to treat animals as means to our ends. It must be something that I'm not getting. But then I started reading various works of philosophy that purported to justify the fact that we are special, you know, that some of them did say that, well, we have immortal souls or we're made in the image of God. I didn't believe that. Kant said, well, they're not self-conscious, so they're not, uh, so they're not ends in themselves, and they can be used as means to an end. But surely, you know, I've. Why is self-consciousness the relevant thing? Even if, you know, whether or not they are, um, the capacity to suffer is is what's important, really. And so eventually I thought, well, this is not a... It's it's not that I'm missing something. It's that there is something drastically wrong with the, with the situation and the way we're treating animals.
6: Alicia, you're raising a child as a vegan. Well, he's no longer a child. You've raised him all these years to have your values. And I do believe that what you say about parents is that with the best of intentions, when I decided I'd be vegetarian for ethical reasons, and my mother kept saying, oh, you really do have to have a bit and it's going to be, a," that parents today have very little excuse for making those kinds of arguments that they used to think were for the benefit of their children, and with men, that you had to toughen yourself. It was really vital that you had to be the provider and the defender, and, you know, nature was dangerous. You had to keep those animals out of the house and from attacking your family. Those ideas have gone away to a certain extent, to a large extent, and now we have mothers like you, and that's a wonderful thing. I
5: love hearing all that you're saying. And it made me think when you said that animals, you know, maybe aren't self-conscious. I'm not sure if I understand the entire proper definition, but I would argue they are because the way my dogs look at me when they do, you know, if they do something like, you know, they've gone to the bathroom in the wrong place, the, the drama that occurs inside of them, the emotional reaction... The shame they feel, the um and then one time I was with an elephant in Africa, and I you know, we stumbled upon him in the bush. And you know how when you stumble upon an elephant, you need to make a lot of noise to scare them away. And he put on such a show. This elephant looked at it was like, you know, he stopped, and we were doing all the noises. and he looked at us and he just said, I'm not going to do this today. It was sort of this whole drama around. <laughs> he had so much pride and he was trying to show us that he was strong and tough. But meanwhile, he was just scared and wanted to go away. So I think that represents a self consciousness on some level. I don't know if that would be correct, but. I, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> that,
3: that there are many animals who are self conscious. And you, know, you mentioned elephants and dogs are probably good candidates. But there may well be some others that are not. You know, yes. we, we We don't know. But. As I say, if they can feel pain, if they can suffer, that seems to me the, the critical thing. Yes. Um, and the self-consciousness, you know, maybe adds something to that for some species, but uh, perhaps not for all of them.
6: Well, I will say, I find it so annoying <laughs> that on TikTok and some parts of the internet, you have people shaming their animals, putting a sign around their necks to say, I've been bad Aww. or making them stand in the corner facing the wall you know, the shame is that you don't understand your animal's communication. They can't speak your language. You haven't a clue what they're saying in theirs. You'd speak not one word of dog or elephant, and you expect them to fit into our world. And yet they're emotional creatures, all of them, I believe. I mean, there were just some articles, I'm sure you saw them, about new ones, about insects, and the fact that they can feel shame. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just size doesn't mean anything. Brain size doesn't mean anything, but they are all emotional beings and they feel lonely. They grieve. They love. They feel joy. They cherish freedom and they don't want to be dominated any more than it. we do. I mean, yes, a wolf has an alpha wolf, but We aren't understanding the very clever ways in which they try to communicate with us. Um, Even a cat going doing their business outside the box, it's not a random act. It's a message that I'm sick, my box isn't clean, you've got a new mate who kicks me off the couch. There's something going on there where they're very cleverly trying to impart something to you.
2: United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN.
4: Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today
5: is Alison Bree. It's extraordinary what PETA has done. And, you know, PETA has some can have a reputation at times. And at the end of the day, you have accomplished so much. You have the legislation that you've passed, the stuff with laboratories and experimenting, you know, getting general motors, you know, not to do these car crashes. Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the highlights of your career as or your, your mission as an activist, what you have accomplished, aside from having nine million members and changing the lives of many, many people. Of course, that's massive. But specifically for the animals, what things are sort of highlighting the changes that you've made that you can say, we've changed this. And I know it's because of the work I've done.
6: Well, we can be really annoying, and we can be somewhat embarrassing, (laughs) and people will want to distance themselves from us. But there's always a method behind the madness. We're not here to win a popularity contest. Uh, Our feeling is, if you tell people what they already know and agree with, what's the point? So we're here to push the envelope. And at first, even it's hard to think back now, when we first brought up fur in 1980, and did a massive mailing showing steel traps of raccoons and foxes and so on caught in them. Nobody knew there was anything wrong with fur. I mean, that's amazing to think of now. And people mocked us as we were outside fur stores, crawling along the ground with fake blood and what have you, jumping onto runways. We were detested for that. But today, fur really is dead. It has gone. The same was true with For 40 years almost, 30-some years, we stood outside circuses, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, the greatest, which I think was the cruelest show on earth with their chained elephants and their bull hooks and their training. And people said, don't you dare stand here with my children coming in. Don't you ruin my children's evening or afternoon. And they would be vile to us. Uh, We suffered all sorts of abuse, but we really didn't care because we knew that we were right and that the animals (laughs) couldn't stand there. And so we did. And of course, we brought other actions, as you say. We litigated. We went to the federal government. We did undercover investigations until we had enough that they cried uncle. They realized people aren't coming to the shows anymore. They don't want to deal with the demonstrators or they understand the cruelty. And we've been fined and so on. So they folded their tents and went away. Funny enough, they're coming back now, but it's without any animals whatsoever. It'll be the new Ringling Show. That's
5: amazing.
6: So when we first started talking about vegan, and I remember cooking the first vegan hot dogs on the National Mall in a plug-in wok, and people would come by and they would say, what are these? And we would say, oh, they're plant-based. They're, they're made with plants. And they would go, Ooh. And they would go next door to the pork hot dogs. But now, of course, everybody knows vegan, 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 it's everywhere. And so I think you just have to plug away. We were very uh, excited to stop some of the military's tests on animals, to stop, as you say, the car companies all over the world crashing pigs and baboons into walls when now we have mannequins. We've employed many scientists. We have over 19 scientists. I say over because I think it's now 20 on staff. And they actively find ways to fund non-animal alternatives to very cruel animal experiments and get them adopted. Monoclonal antibodies, different um, things for uh, diphtheria, for uh, a different lung model instead of sticking mice into tubes. So basically, we just try to reach as many people as possible in as many ways as possible, with as many different messages as possible, deathly serious, scientific, shocking, funny, whatever we can do, because you never know what's going to touch somebody and make them think, well, maybe I won't do that anymore, or well, they have a point. So people do throw rocks at us all the time. But that's fine. Just in the back of your mind, as advertising people say, you have to hear a message seven times before it resonates. So we're, we're hard at it.
5: <laughs> yeah. I think it was Peter who said, we all eat, we all dress ourselves, or maybe this was you, Ingrid. Ingrid. I don't know which one of you it was. You'll have to claim it. We all dress ourselves, shampoo our hair, buy things. When we look at all the, those ways we spend money, we have the power of the purse, And that's so important. This sounds like Peter. Even something like you buy a pair of leather shoes and you don't think twice about it. And then I was just going to say that there are so many great alternatives out there for all of these things. But you're talking about the power of the purse. The power each of us has is in the purchases that we make.
6: Well, we said that, but Peter okay. <laughs> said everybody is something everybody can do, right? Peter, because everyone eats three times a day. And that's some three times a day you can make a choice. But the power of the purse is very important to understand because somebody can feel magnanimous and they are. If they write a check for $10, $100, $10,000 to a humane society or an animal rights organization. But yet in the course of a year, how much do they spend on things that are tested in animals' eyes and down their stomachs, on the slaughter industry for various reasons, on anything that's done to take baby bears away from their mothers and chain them to a wall and teach them how to stand on their hind legs for entertainment. I mean, all the things, and we could just go on and on. If you are not being a conscientious consumer, then you're really negating, you're you're eliminating that good that you're doing because you don't think about how powerful your purse is.
3: Yeah, exactly. I think, and, and that's really all the support that the animal industry needs. If they continue to get that revenue, then they're powerful. Then they have enough money to lobby Congress people, to make donations to their campaigns, and essentially to, to block legislation that would stop the abuses that most people really would like to see stopped, but don't know how to stop. So, um, trying to reduce the the power of that industry uh, is the thing to do and and uh, if we can stop people purchasing their products then you know that's <laughs> there's there's lots of things wrong about a capitalist system but one thing that's really right about it is that if people stop buying stuff then people will have to stop producing it because nobody produces when there's no market so that's really what we what we need to get people to do
5: what i think connects all of this is when ingrid you also spoke about Food deserts and how making the choice to be not eating meat and not eating dairy really affects these food deserts. And when I think about the fact that nine million people die a year of hunger when there's more than enough food on the planet to feed each mouth, we just feed it to animals instead. And so it's not an efficient use of resources. Because you know, one burger requires the amount of all these resources that could have made fed an entire village of people. So the, the act of making this choice to help animals or to end hunger are quite connected can you talk a little bit about the food deserts and how meat and dairy really specifically does aid in this problem
6: yes it is all absolutely connected uh, animal liberation is human liberation that's what it is but People who have limited choices, who live perhaps in neighborhoods where they may not have transport to get to a big grocery store. And so they're stuck with what is around them. And what is around them is usually places where they, stores where they cannot get whole foods, grains, fruits, vegetables, fresh foods. And so they've also, they're surrounded by fast food outlets and they prey on them. They're cheap food that is going to give them the last thing that anybody who is impoverished needs, and that's ill health. So they're economically deprived, and then suddenly they've got diabetes, they've got various cancers, they've got high blood pressure, um, they're obese, and they have all the attendant health problems that come with obesity. Uh, from malnutrition, I mean, it's, the, it's not, not getting enough to eat. It's just getting junk to eat that is clogging their arteries and making them a physical mess. So we do have a program. It's quite small, but it's going out to places such as Atlanta and where we hooked up with Pinky Cole, the so-called slutty vegan, who is a marvelous woman, has a food truck. And we've hooked up with various uh, reverends in the black religious community in certain cities. And we are feeding groceries and we are giving recipes and we are trying to help people campaign to have a diversion of funds from junk food into wholesome food.
1: a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app.
4: Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree.
5: my heart's desire is to really help people to heal and the world to heal and for all creatures to heal and our planet to heal and in this conversation we've been talking about how you know we can end the suffering of creatures and people who are in need and how that's all connected and i just wonder what both of you think is the broken part of us that can be healed by respecting other species?
6: I think that one of the things that we just had recently might be of use. We had a virtual animal rights conference, and I thought much of what we were saying could be applied to any movement or anything that anyone was going through when they were trying to achieve good uh, even in things that they were doing that were outside the realm of a movement. And that was a session called Burn On, Don't Burn Out. Because I think that so many of us are crushed by what we see. I mean, even crushed, people are crushed by the pandemic. They're crushed by being having to be locked down. And it might make them be helped by being having them think more empathically about, for example, a bird is locked down for life if you put them in a cage. A monkey in a laboratory is locked down for life. And I think that they can help heal themselves by thinking about how it fits into the whole, but also to think that when you feel depressed or you feel enraged or you feel just worn down, it's so useful as a device to look back at how far society and the world has come, the positive things that have have come about, all those things that have progressed, and then look forward, not with despair or thinking that things are are hopeless and, and there's nothing you can do, but the little things even that you can do every day that will make you feel better and will make you less despondent and will bring about some positive change. Maybe that's too simplistic a way to put it, but there are so many ways that you can lift yourself out of the kind of malaise that comes from being in a pandemic or looking at the wars that are going on in the world or if you travel overseas and you see the slums and the poverty and and so on, or if you read the paper and you see it. There are so many ways in which you can concentrate on the now and the today and the what you can do that that's where our focus should be and that is a very healing thing.
3: If I can add to that, I think it's really important to know that we are part of this change and that involves... Bringing your values together with your actions, with your life, to me, that's been a really important thing that um, recognizing where my food comes from and avoiding food that is produced in ways that exploit animals and are cruel to animals has helped to bring my values together with my with my actions because food is something that we have every day we make choices about what to eat three times a day perhaps and so it's a way of reaffirming that you're living a life that is in accordance with your values it's not the only way of doing it of course there are other things that we need to do as well but it's a really important one and as i we were saying earlier you know we know that we're not supporting with our dollars the uh, industries that are exploiting animals. We also know that we are reducing our impact on climate change and that's another thing that we need to talk about. The, the planet needs healing from what we have been doing to it over the last couple of centuries of industrialization and the increasing amount of, of meat and animal products produced has had a big impact on on climate, it's responsible for huge quantities of greenhouse gases, particularly potent methane that is being released. And we know that those who eat a plant-based diet significantly contributing to reducing their personal footprints, uh, carbon footprints, and uh, also their withdrawing support from those industries that are involved in this. So that's another way in which our values can be displayed through our actions, that we we care about the planet, we care about the future of the planet, we care about the people who are going to suffer most from climate change. And again, that's the people uh, who are in poverty, who don't really have alternatives, who rely on rainfall to grow the crops that they they eat. Uh, They're the ones who will suffer most, who will have the the least, the fewest options to go somewhere else. So uh, in all these ways, I think focusing on what we eat and trying to Not be complicit in the suffering of animals, not be complicit in the pollution of the planet. Those are things that can heal ourselves at the same time as we're healing the planet and healing the violent relationships that we uh, would otherwise be having with animals.
6: There are two things that you hear all the time, and one is, I feel like an automaton. I mean, I, I just go through life, which is related to the other one, which of course is, what is the meaning of life? And you may never know what the meaning of life is, but maybe the meaning of life is that every single day you try to change something a little bit. You try to bring a positive force to bear. You try to do some good. And most important, I think, is, yes, what we eat is vital because, as you say, three times a day and snacks in between is that that can be a vegan life or it can be exploitive, but it's also feeding others. I think anyone who's listening to this has the ability to cook or buy or prepare or something a meal for someone else, not for another vegan, but for somebody who is eating animals or eating things that animals produce, like eggs and milk and honey and so on, is show them. Because often people will not explore this themselves. They're stuck in their traditions. They're stuck in their old ways. But if you go next door or you go to work with a meal or you pay it back to the person in the drive-in that has a vegan burger and you pay it back so the person behind you gets a free one, you are introducing them to something that might stick. And of course, especially with children and the parents of children, as you know more than I, is those are the great influencers. And those children have, hopefully, if we don't just mess up the whole thing, decades and decades and decades of life ahead of them. And so they are worth investing the time in educating them. And they're always invariably receptive. They don't want to hurt animals. It's only when they grow up and they become inured that they really start to think it's it's sissy to care or something like that. It's not. When they're kids, they want animals to be friends, not food.
5: I just wanted to echo a little bit of what both of you said, but um, go back to the child in us. We are all little wounded children. And I mean, hopefully some of us aren't, but there are a lot of wounded children. And when you think about a child, if you put a child in a room with a cow or a pig or a chicken, the last thing they're going to do is come out having eaten or tried to eat that animal. They're going to snuggle with it, play with it, and connect with it. Once you go to an animal sanctuary and play with cows and play with pigs and hold a turkey in your arms and have them sit on you like a cat, you just start to feel connected to yourself and to the purity and their deep souls. And it's the most beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think it's just connecting back to our child and ourselves and allowing ourselves to live our truths. And I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with both of you. Is there anything else you want to say?
3: Thank you, Alicia. You, you've said that uh, beautifully and um, been a privilege to be part of this conversation. I don't need to say any more than that, I believe.
6: <laughs> Thank you, Alicia, very, very much for everything you do for Peter, for the animals, for humanity, for your son. And if anybody needs anything that Peter can provide, that and that's the P-E-T-A one, <laughs> um, to help them in their exploration of how to live peacefully on the planet please get in touch with us here we are peter.org i couldn't be more proud
5: and proud of you both and just proud of having this conversation with you and knowing that you're in the world doing what you're doing so thank you for all the good and kindness that you're putting in the world it's really 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 beautiful and we need more of you so thank you thank you thank you
6: thank you alicia very much To dig
5: deeper into this episode's topic and resources, visit thekindlife.com. The Real Heal is an iHeartRadio production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Alicia Silverstone. From iHeartRadio, our managing producer is Lindsay Hoffman. From Frequency Media, Michelle Corey is our executive producer. Jordan Rizzieri is our producer. And Imani Leonard and Laura Boyman are our associate producers. Sydney Evans is our dialogue editor. And Claire Bidegary-Curtis is our mixer and sound designer. This podcast is available on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found.